All right, well, welcome to our first week in our New Testament overview here in Sunday School. And if you've been with us for the Old Testament class, which just finished up last week with Haggai, Zephaniah, no, Zechariah, and Malachi, um, this is less of a different class and more of a continuation of that same class. It's going to be more similar than different. And when you move from Malachi to Matthew in your Bible, in a sense, you're coming just to the next chapter in the story. There's not a massive break where um, the contents are so different um, in one sense, but in another sense, there are some significant differences that we'll look at. So today, before we get into one specific book in the New Testament survey, which will be the main structure of the class, where we'll look at one book each week, um, this week we're going to do an overview of the entire New Testament. So if each lesson is a 20,000-foot flyover, this is a 40,000-foot flyover where you barely get any of the details, but you see how the whole picture fits together. You can kind of see the entire state or the entire uh, country in one fell swoop, and then when we go back down, you'll have kind of the, the structure in your mind of how to piece things together with the information we get there. So today, we want to cover three major areas in the New Testament. First, we're going to talk about the setting of the New Testament. Second, we'll look at genre in the New Testament. And third, we'll look at the theme of the New Testament. So we're going to cover the setting, the genre, and the theme. So I'll start with the setting. When we got into the Old Testament, we really didn't have that much to do to set the stage because the setting of the Old Testament was nothing. There wasn't anything there when the Old Testament began. And so we developed the setting as we taught through the Old Testament, as we went from creation to the patriarchs, to the land of Egypt, and then through the, the history of the nation of Israel. And then we ended up with the return from exile, after Israel and Judah had been sent into exile, and then Judah returned um, in, what was that, the mid-6th century, so 500s B.C. And as we leave Malachi, who's a prophet to Israel in that post-exilic time, it's about 400 B.C. Um, they've left uh, Persia, who took over from Babylon while they were in exile. And Malachi prophesied around 430 B.C. So we, when we get to the end of Malachi, we're, we're, there's about 400 years before we get to Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of things that are different when he gets there than when Malachi was prophesying. So what changed? What happened in between? Well, first of all, after Persia took over Babylon in Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar sees the, the writing on the wall, that night Persia comes in and conquers Babylon, um, or at least, the, at least yeah, the city of Babylon, and that kind of leads to the entire empire falling. After that, about 100 years later, Alexander the Great from Greece conquered Persia. So there's a new superpower in the world, and it's Greece. And this was about 100 years after Malachi prophesied. And Alexander the Great and Greece are mostly important because of the culture that they brought to the world. Because although they didn't last this long, the effects of the Hellenization, which means kind of the Greekization of the world that Alexander brought, lasted from the 3rd century BC to the 3rd century AD. So it lasted almost 600 years, even as other superpowers took the stage, they adopted the culture of Greece. And so that was the culture of the day during the New Testament. And this is why the Jews of the time period before Christ, so between 400 and 0 AD, during that time period they translated the Hebrew Old Testament 
into Greek. And they did that because that's the language that everyone knew. As Hebrew was passing from the scene slightly, where not everyone knew Hebrew, but everyone knew Greek, they wanted the, the, the scripture in their own tongue. So they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek for readability. So that would have been around at the time of Jesus and the New Testament. And as I said, the main reason is that was just the common language. There wasn't anything mystical or magical or special about Greek other than it's what everyone could read. So they were putting the language of scripture, or they were putting scripture into the language that everyone could read from. Um, Jesus and his disciples and the people in the first century in the New Testament probably spoke Aramaic, but everyone knew Greek. And so that was the lingua franca. That's what everyone used. So Alexander the Great dies after kind of setting the stage with this Greek culture. And while his early successors kind of let Israel be in the land, they didn't bother with them that much, those who came later brought in a time of great persecution for Israel. And around 200 BC, a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes began persecuting the Jews. He forced the Jews to choose either idolatry or death. And he's famous for erecting a pagan altar in the temple and slaughtering a pig on that altar. He was doing everything that he could to be an affront to the Jewish religion. And what that did, rather than um, stepping on the Jews and forcing them into submission, it fostered this spirit of nationalism and pride and uh, rejection of this persecution. So there was a resistance to the foreign authority. And this is the spirit that Jesus encountered when he came to Israel. He, he found this spirit of resistance to this foreign power that was trying to, to step on their toes, to force them into submission, and they were wanting someone to overthrow that power. So that's where that spirit comes, where he comes as the king of the Jews, and he proclaims himself as, as someone who liberates them from their sins and the, the promise of all these Old Testament prophecies, and they're looking for someone to overthrow the Romans. That's where that spirit comes from. And that also explains why Herod and Pilate and other leaders of the day were so, so kind of scared of Jesus because they, were, they knew that the spirit existed among the Jews and they thought that he was coming to incite them into rebellion. So they were very fearful. And that all comes from that time of persecution uh, of, from Antiochus Epiphanes, around 200 BC. And as I mentioned, the Roman Empire came to the scene, and that was as a result of some of this time of persecution. The Greek Empire was kind of dissolving. Rome was growing in power. And the Roman Empire allowed the local governments to continue in the different places that they conquered. So Herod and his line were friendly with the Romans, and so they allowed them to keep ruling. And Pilate was from a line of people established by Rome, but they pretty much ruled independently. They ruled on their own, in their own sector, but as they were doing that, they had the shadow of the emperor in the background. So as they're fearful of this rebellion, the main thing they're fearful about is the emperor coming in and squashing the rebellion and removing them from office, and even maybe removing their heads from their bodies. They're very scared of that. And the, the emperor really overshadows the entire New Testament. Because not only does is he play a factor in the Gospels, he also plays a factor in the growth of the church. And you see that uh, Paul focused his ministry on getting to Rome. That was the hub of the empire, the hub of the world. And Paul was focused on getting there, and he even used the Roman legal system to get there. Um, he had an audience with Nero himself, and that, that was his desired goal to proclaim the gospel. Then later, Rome instituted the first worldwide persecution of Christians, 
um, which again is the backdrop for some of the later books in the New Testament. So the Roman Empire plays a large part in the backdrop of our study over the next six months or so. Now another development that was leading up to the New Testament that's important in the New Testament is that of the synagogue. Now the synagogue was not existent in the Old Testament. It's something that developed probably during the exile in Babylon. And this, the synagogue just means gathering. That's what the word means in Greek. And the Jews in exile, where they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a place to worship, would gather together and establish places for worship, for instruction, for teaching, and for prayer. And when they returned to the land after the exile, those synagogues came with them. They brought the synagogues back. And so they continued as places of instruction and worship and teaching. And you can see Jesus and the apostles strategically using these synagogues as kind of the hubs of the Jewish community. And they would enter them and also give instruction and teaching. But their teaching would be proclamation of the gospel. So you see that all throughout the New Testament. Now, while the synagogues grew in popularity, the temple remained as the only place for sacrifice. And if you remember, when the first exiles returned, they rebuilt the temple. That was the first thing they did when they got back into the land. That's the book of Ezra. And later, Herod added to that temple as kind of a way to appease the Jews and kind of gain some favor with them. And the temple is also a large part of the backdrop of the New Testament. There's a lot of aspects of Old Testament prophecy that pertain to the temple, that Jesus interacts with the temple a lot. And then in AD 70, kind of after many of the books in the New Testament, that temple is destroyed as Rome puts down another uprising in Israel. So the synagogues were for teaching instruction. The temple was still for sacrifice. But synagogues were all over the nation of Israel, and they were also all over the world. Because when the exiles returned to Israel, not all of them returned. Some remained in Persia. Some dispersed to other cities around the world. And wherever they went, they took synagogues with them. And so when the apostles go from town to town in Turkey, in Greece, in Rome, wherever they went, they would enter the synagogue there in the town. And that was because these Jews in exile took them all over the world. And God used that as a very strategic part of the spread of the gospel around the world. Now, another development that's between the Testaments is that of the Jewish authority. There's some figures in the Gospels especially that we see that we haven't seen in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the ruling power came from the line of Judah. The, the kingly line specifically came from Judah, the line of David and his descendants. But in the, by the first century AD, power had shifted to the religious sector. So during that time of, of Alexander the Great's descendants, when there was a lot of political turmoil and people were backstabbing to get power, there was a religious sect within Judaism that kind of rose to the top. A lot of political intrigue, a lot of made-for-TV stories ended up with these, these religious leaders in power, and the line of David kind of went out of power. So the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling group of 70 Jewish leaders, um, was made up primarily of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups that developed out of that political power structure. Now, the Pharisees were the conservatives. These are the ones that held out on the Greek pagan influence during this time between um, the exile and the New Testament. So they held out on this pagan influence, and they doubled down on the law of Moses, even to the point where they were adding their own interpretation to the level of authority that the Old Testament had. So they're the conservative branch. Then you have the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees are the liberal branch, where they welcomed a little bit more of the cultural influence and saw the, New, the Old Testament through the lens of that Greek philosophy. So that's what leads them to deny the existence of angels, deny the existence of the resurrection, things like that. But these two groups are coexisting together among the Jewish leadership, and that developed in between Malachi and Matthew. So that's the setting for the New Testament. The tensions are high, as Jews have faced a lot of persecution from foreign rulers. The Jewish power has shifted from the line of David to the religious sector, and they don't have a king to rule them anyway. That's Rome, so it kind of makes sense that the line of David has, has gone out of vogue. And then the language of the day is Greek, but the Romans ruled the world, and Jews were spread out throughout the entire Roman Empire. Those are the things that have changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But as we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, we're still very much in the same world as we were in the Old Testament. When you read the Gospels, the world in which they take place is very much the Old Testament world. It's, it's not a massively different European or American world. It's still the world of the prophets and the, the nation of Israel. Many Jews of the day are still living and abiding by the Mosaic Law. They're still worshiping in the temple. And they're awaiting the Messiah and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, specifically those promises that pertain to their land and their kingdom. They're very much holding on to the Old Testament and hoping for God to come and fulfill those things. So when Jesus comes and claims to be the Messiah, he makes waves. He causes a big stir. And when he talks about destroying the temple and restoring it in three days, they thought he was threatening their way of worship, which in a sense he was. He was saying, yeah, there's something better than this that's here. And when he claims greater authority than Moses, many rejected him, especially those Pharisees who've doubled down on the authority of Moses. When the apostles in the book of Acts began applying their freedom from the law, especially in the dietary restrictions and whether people need to be circumcised and welcoming in the Gentiles, they meet great resistance from Jewish Christians because that's all that these Jewish people have known before coming to Christ. So when we read the New Testament, we need to make sure that we're doing it through the lens of what were these people expecting? What do they know from the Old Testament? And as things are changing, because things do change when Christ comes and people turn from um, their past ways in Israel to this new life of Christianity, things do change, but we're reading about that process of change. So we need to make sure we, we look at it through their own eyes. So that's the setting. And different teachers will refer to different aspects of that setting. So what I taught was not exhaustive. That just kind of lays the groundwork for what has changed. Um, remembering these parts of the setting, though, will be helpful as we move through the New Testament. What the, what the cultural um, setting was, what the, the government looked like, kind of the, the spirit of the people and their expectations moving forward. So that's the setting. Now let's move into the genre in the New Testament. And genre just means the type of, <coughs> type of literature that we're studying. In the Old Testament, we looked at um, the genre of historical books, which were, is a lot of the Old Testament. We looked at the Pentateuch, which was kind of the origin story of the world and the nation of Israel. We looked at kind of the poetic and wisdom literature in the middle, and then the, the genre of the prophets. And understanding those genres help us to read each book according to the way it's meant to be read. So you don't read history like poetry or poetry like history. You read it according to its own rules. Now, before we get to the specific genres of the New Testament, we should take a step back and kind of consider the entire makeup of the New Testament and see how it differs from that of the Old. Because 
The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which was the language of the people, and it covers several thousand years of history. It covers from creation, however long ago that was, however many thousands of years, up till 430 BC. That's several thousand years. The New Testament was written in Greek, which is still the language of the people, but it only covers 70 years of history. That's a significant difference. The Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years by several dozen different authors, but the New Testament was written over the period of about 50 years by nine different authors. So there's some kind of stark differences in how the Old Testament came to be and what it covers and how the New Testament came to be and what it covers. And though both are God's word, God composed them very differently according to his purposes. Now, within the New Testament, we find four primary genres. And the first is the Gospels. That's what we see when we first turn into the New Testament. The word gospel means good news. And the genre of gospel specifically refers to those books that record the life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're focused on his life and what he does. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all part of the gospel genre. Now, the Gospels include a large amount of history from Jesus' ministry, but they're not just history textbooks. They're not just history textbooks. And although they have a lot of kind of the biography of Jesus' life, they're not merely biographies of Jesus. If they were biographies, they would have missed a large amount. John even says, yeah, I couldn't put everything in here. And there's 30 years of Jesus' life that they kind of missed if they were doing a biography. That wouldn't sell very well today. They wouldn't have done very good research. And so there's similarities between biography and historical narrative, but they differ from what this gospel genre is. Because the gospels are not just trying to record the events of Jesus' life. They, they have a distinct purpose in telling these events that Jesus has gone through. They're recording events from the life of Jesus to show that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the suffering servant who died on the cross to institute the new covenant and provide salvation for all who believe in him. So they're not just saying, yeah, this stuff happened. They are crafting a story from true events. They're not lying in any way, but they're crafting a story from his life to show who he was. And their purpose is evangelistic. And by the way, the word evangelistic comes from the same root word as gospel that we get in Greek. So they're intrinsically related. Now you may wonder, why do we have four Gospels? Why do we have four Gospels telling the same story? Why wouldn't one do? That'd be one way to approach it. Why do we have four? Why don't we just have one? Because that would tell the same story, right? It seems like we're just taking up a lot of extra pages and making me do the same Bible reading plan four times in a row, which gets kind of redundant. And it's interesting because roughly half of Matthew and Luke is shared in the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called that because they're so similar. So half of Matthew and Luke are shared, and 90% of Mark is contained in those other two books. So why not just put them all in one? And that's actually called a harmony of the gospel, which has been done since the second century. So within 100 years of the New Testament being written, they were actually doing this harmonization of the gospel to show in one story all the events in chronological order. And sometimes that can be helpful. It can be helpful to see the events as they happen chronologically, but that takes away from each author's purpose. See, each author of these Gospels have a purpose in writing the way they did, in ordering the stories the way they did. 
And they're each written to a slightly different audience with a slightly different purpose. And sometimes their purpose leads them to include a story that is included in, in another gospel. Sometimes their purpose leads them to put stories out of chronological order to make a, a point about something else. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. They're not, they're not claiming to create a chronological story of Jesus' life. They're, they're claiming to have this purpose of, of evangelism. And sometimes their purpose leads them to make an editorial comment or explain something after the story has happened so that their audience can understand. So their writing shows us their purpose. So Matthew, for instance, writes to a primarily Jewish audience. He's writing to the Jews. And he's writing to show that Jesus is the Messiah. His his main point is to show that Jesus is the one they've been looking for. That he is the Messiah from the line of Abraham, the line of David. And that's why he begins with Jesus' genealogy. He jumps right in and says, Jesus descended from Abraham, descended from David. He's right here. Before he even gets to his birth, he shows that he's connected with Abraham and David. And he's writing to show that Jesus brings blessings from the Abrahamic covenant and that he's the promised king of the Jews from the line of David who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. So Matthew connects Jesus with the promises of the Old Testament in order to help the Jews see who he really is. So that's his distinct purpose And everything about his gospel is is driven by that idea. Mark, however, writes to show that Jesus is the suffering son of God. He's not not, um, saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah, but that's just not his purpose in writing his gospel. He's focusing on the fact that Jesus is God and cementing the deity of Christ. And he's also focusing on his role of the suffering servant from Isaiah. So his goal in the stories that he includes and the way he tells those stories is to highlight that Jesus is God and that his sacrificial death brings life to all those who believe in him. And he also explains several events that Matthew doesn't because his audience is more of a Gentile audience who don't have that same knowledge base of understanding about the temple and sacrificial systems and feasts or even locations in Israel that the Jewish audience of Matthew would have. So he's writing... He's going to gear that towards his audience and according to his purpose. Now, Luke is also written to a Gentile audience, but he highlights something different about Jesus. Matthew has showed that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Mark has showed that Jesus is the suffering servant and the Son of God. Luke portrays him as the Son of Man, who dies for all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike. Luke shows that Jesus is the perfect man who came to identify with the sins of the people and gave himself as a substitute for them. So we have Jesus as the Messiah, we have Jesus as the Son of God, as deity, and Jesus as the Son of Man, showing that he is truly man. Then we come to John. And John is very distinct from these other three Gospels. His Gospel was written later than the other three, and the content and his purpose reflect the time of his writing. His his gospel um, is, is kind of written with the backdrop of Gnosticism, which is a starting to attack the incarnation of Jesus Christ and putting some chinks in the foundation of the Christian faith. So John writes with that in mind, and he wants to defend the incarnation. He wants to show that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he also writes evangelistically. In John 20, 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So John is not just writing to defend the incarnation, but also he's writing evangelistically to say, I want you to know who Jesus is and also to believe in his name and have eternal life. So each of these different purposes are complementary, but that shows us why we have four Gospels and not one. It's not that they just were trying to race to see who could get it out first and make the most money in publishing. They probably didn't make any money in publishing. If anything, they got persecution for publishing these Gospels. What they're trying to do is highlight different purposes for different audiences to share the Gospel most effectively with their audience. So that's why we have four instead of one. But why don't we have more Gospels? If it's effective that we have four, why not have six or eight or 12, as many as we can? And in fact, there are other documents that claim to be Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. And there's more from an ancient time period that claim to be Gospels. So why don't we elevate those to the same status as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, the answer to that has to do with canonicity, which is a fancy word that just means why books are in the canon of Scripture. Um, And canon comes from a word that means standard or measuring stick. So the canon of Scripture are those books that have met the standard of the Word of God. They've met the standard of being the inspired Word of God. And it's important to remember that these books are not just God's Word because we said so. The church didn't sit down in the first century and pick out the books they wanted to be the Bible. So these books were not given any authority by the church. Rather, instead of determining which books were in the Bible, they recognized which books were the inspired word of God already. So these books were, had the authority and the content and the DNA of Scripture before they were recognized as canonical. The church came along and just evaluated them, tested them, and these are the ones that passed the test, and they recognized as being what they already were. Now, the canon of the Old Testament was completed by the time of Christ. They'd already gone through this process, tested the works that were legitimate from the hands of prophets, that spoke truth in Scripture. And Jesus even acknowledges the canon of the Old Testament in the Gospels. He speaks of Moses and the prophets and the writings, which speaks to the the Pentateuch and then um, the prophets, which would have included some of that historical narrative, as well as the writings. And so he already assents to this uh, canon in the Old Testament. And we see even before him, there are, when people are writing the Septuagint, translating the Septuagint into Greek, they, they've already recognized this determination as well. So the Old Testament canon has already been set. And then we come to the New Testament. And the New Testament has to do with the authority that Jesus gives to his apostles. So Jesus did not write any book in the New Testament. He never sat down and left us with his writings, his teachings. Instead, Jesus passed his authority down to his apostles. And he indicated that the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. Meaning, you know, that that applies to us today, that the Holy Spirit still leads us into truth and guides us. But for the apostles, it had a very specific application, that it was going to lead them into truth as they wrote and developed the New Testament. And in John 14, 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So there's, that seems like a very solid endorsement where Jesus is saying, I am going to send the Spirit to guide you into the writing, even specifically of these Gospels, of what I've taught you. 
And then that authority carries on to the other writings of the apostles. So the test for inclusion in the canon had to do with the apostles. So Matthew, John, and Peter, who contributed to the New Testament, they were all apostles. They were disciples with Jesus during his ministry, and they were commissioned as apostles um, when he departed the earth. And then Paul was not a disciple, but he was also commissioned as an apostle on the road to Damascus. He saw Christ, he was given that commission, and so his writings have that mark of apostolicity, which is another fancy word that keeps theologians employed. Now, Mark was not an apostle, but he had a close connection with Paul and especially with Peter. And much of his gospel looks and bears the fingerprints of actually Peter's recollection of what happened. And so Mark's not an apostle, but he is intimately connected with Paul and Peter, who are apostles. And that gives that the stamp of authority. Uh, Luke was also not an apostle, but he traveled with Paul significantly. And he also says that he got all of his source material from eyewitnesses. So not only is he with Paul and given that stamp of authority, but he got his information from those who were there. Then Jude and James were the half-brothers of Jesus and also had close connections with the apostles. James is even referred to as an apostle in the book of Acts. And while the author of Hebrews is unknown, it's either Paul or someone within the Pauline circle. He knows Timothy and mentions him at the end of the book. And so this author of Hebrews, while unknown, is still included in that apostolic community. So those nine men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, and the author of Hebrews, are all either apostles or intimately connected with the apostles. And so the documents they wrote are all authentic, or the documents that we can determine are authentic and from their hands were accepted as scripture early on, even before the rest of the canon was completed. You see in in Peter, Peter refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. And he says, yeah, they're really hard to understand, which we can connect with today. So Paul refers, or sorry, Peter refers to Paul's writing as scripture, even as he's continuing the writing in the New Testament. And Paul refers to the book of Luke as scripture, as already being recognized as scripture during their lifetime. So then what about the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas? Well, Thomas was written by an apostle, right? And Judas lived with Christ during his time on earth. So why don't we recognize those? Well, actually, neither of those books were written by their namesake. They're part of a group of literature called pseudepigrapha, which is another one of those fancy words. Basically, it means that it was written by a false author. It was written by someone and then given another name for publicity and for recognition. And so it would be like finding a lost diary of Amelia Earhart today that looks authentic and looks written by her hand, only come to find out that it was written by someone in 2019 purporting to be Amelia Earhart. It would have no validity. It wasn't from her. It wouldn't be recognized as authentic. And so this was true for the Gospels of Thomas and Judas, as well as several other early documents that claimed to be on the same level of Scripture. They were shown to be unauthentic, non-apostolic, so they were not included in Scripture. And in addition, their content did not line up with the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. And that's another aspect to apostolicity, that the content of the teaching needed to line up with that of Jesus and the teaching he passed down to his apostles. So that's why James was viewed with suspicion for so long, because it seems like there's a disconnect between Paul's understanding of justification by faith and James' understanding of justification by works. And in reality, there's not. There's ways, if you're reading carefully, to understand what they're talking about, and they're coming at it from different sides. But for a long time, that was viewed with suspicion because it seemed like it was against the teaching of Scripture. 
So we have the 27 books of the Old Testament. Sorry, New Testament. Oh, I wrote old. Um, and these were recognized as the authoritative, truthful, inspired word of God. The other documents from the same time period were not recognized as scripture, either because they're false authorship claims or because of their lack of apostolicity or because the teaching in the word did not connect with uh, the teaching of, of Christ and the other apostles. So no one saw the writings of Clement or Irenaeus as scripture, even though they wrote soon after the other apostles. And the Gospel of Thomas, the Book of Enoch, for example, some of these uh, same time period literature, they were never recognized as scripture because the person whose name is on the book didn't write them, and because the teaching in the book didn't accord with the rest of scripture. So that's a long answer to say why we don't have one gospel and why we don't have six or more. We have four because we have these four gospels that have been recognized as truly from the hands of the apostles and because they show different purposes in what they're trying to do. So that's gospel, and the other genres will not take as long. Uh, the, next gospel, or sorry, the next genre is that of the book of Acts. And Acts fits in the historical genre, but it's also more than just a historical record because it tells the story of the expansion of the gospel throughout the world. And Acts is actually book two of a set written by Luke. So Luke is the first half, Acts is the second half, and a lot of people even refer to them as the same book. They're, the story of Luke moves to Jerusalem, and the story of Acts moves from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. So there, there's a lot of uh, connection, parallelism, and symbolism even in between the two books. So Acts records the history from the ascension of Christ to a time about 30 years later, and it gives us the context for the writing of many of the epistles. So we see churches planted in Galatia and Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Rome, which we recognize as many of the books in the New Testament, epistles written to those churches. We also, <coughs> we also see a lot of the opposition and persecution faced by the church in these early days, as well as the controversies that came up within the church. And that persecution and controversy are also reflected in a lot of the content of the epistles. And then speaking of epistles, that is the third genre in the New Testament. So an epistle is a letter written either to a specific person or to a church in a specific city. Some epistles were written to address specific situations, like in 1 Corinthians or Philemon, and others were written for more general purposes, like Romans or Ephesians. We have 13 epistles from Paul, 3 from John, 2 from Peter, and then 1 from Jude, James, and the author of Hebrews. So the number of books in the New Testament is mainly made up of the epistles. Now, there are a few letters from Paul that we don't have. He mentions a couple letters in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we don't have record of anymore. So, again, are we missing out on Scripture that we don't have these letters from Paul? And there's also other epistles from around the same time period, like the Epistle of Barnabas, that we have not included in Scripture. Well, the epistle of Barnabas isn't included because its teaching doesn't line up with the apostolic message from the rest of the books. And as far as Paul's lost letters, in God's wisdom, he determined the exact words that he wanted the church to have over the course of church history. And if he had wanted us to have Paul's letters, he would have preserved them for us. He would have given them to us. We don't, so we know that while they're interesting to read, I would love to know what's in those letters. They're not necessary for us today as believers. So we're not missing out on any scripture. God didn't mess up when one of the parchments caught fire or got wet. Now, the epistles were written to address controversy or questions from people or churches. They were written to provide encouragement, edification, and exhortation, and to instruct in the faith. 
And when we re read the epistles, we should pay attention to the audience and the setting, which each teacher will develop for us when we get to those epistles. And when we look at an epistle, we need to first understand what it was saying to that original audience before we can read ourselves into the commands given in the epistles. So if we understand what it meant in the first century, we can understand what it will mean to us today. But we need to take that step first. Now lastly, we have the genre of apocalypse. And Revelation is the only book in this genre in the New Testament. Apocalypse means revelation, and it refers to the unique revelation that God gave to John regarding events that will happen in the future. So the apocalyptic genre refers to kind of end times events. Now there are apocalyptic elements in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel or Daniel or, or even other books, but Revelation is the definitive work on the second coming of Christ. And reading Revelation is different than reading Mark or Romans because the genre is different. There's often symbols that are used to represent events, so reading the straightforward narrative of Mark or the logical argumentative um, reason of Romans will not work in Revelation. We need to read Revelation according to the rules of its genre. However, the purpose of Revelation is very similar to the purpose of the books of the New Testament, and that is to encourage believers in our current state and to give us hope that Jesus is returning to establish his kingdom, to defeat Satan and sin forever, and to lead us into eternity. So his purpose is the same, even though the rules of his genre are a little bit different. So those are the genres of the New Testament. And as with the setting, we can't develop each of those fully. It's merely an overview. And so as we address each book, each teacher will show how that fits into the specific genre and how that helps us to understand the letter. Now, the last piece that we have regarding the New Testament is the theme. And the theme of the New Testament is Jesus Christ. It's very simple. The theme of the New Testament is Jesus Christ. The overarching purpose is to proclaim Jesus as the pinnacle of Old Testament hope and the means for salvation and reconciliation with God. Everything in the New Testament is related to Jesus. So the New Testament shows us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It demonstrates that he was born of a virgin, fully man and like us in every way, yet without sin. It reveals that he is the second Adam, the one foretold in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent, and he obeys where Adam did not. Where Adam cast humanity into death, Jesus gives life to all who believe in him. The New Testament shows us that Jesus came to fulfill the promise to Abraham of giving blessing to the entire world. Jew and Gentile alike receive the blessing of salvation through faith in Jesus, who is the great offspring of David, or sorry, of Abraham. And when Jesus comes again, he will complete the promise to Abraham of land, establishing his kingdom in Jerusalem. The New Testament also shows that Jesus lived in accordance with God's perfect standard and gave himself as a worthy substitute on the cross. It tells us that Jesus is a greater sacrifice than anything offered in the Levitical priesthood and that his act as mediating that sacrifice and being a high priest was greater than any high priest who had come before him. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is supreme over any power and authority in the world. He is co-equal with the Father in glory, and he's currently seated at the right hand of the Father. It shows that Jesus is the true son of David, who will establish his kingdom when he comes again. And it tells us of Jesus' love for us, that even though he has that position in power and authority, that he willingly humbled himself to live among us, to take on human form, and to die a bloody death for us. It shows us that he did this for the glory of God, 
for the joy that was set before him and for our sake. It shows that Jesus knows our pain and suffering because he came and endured it just like we do, when he, and he took our pain and suffering on the cross. The New Testament tells us that Jesus inaugurates the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, and that his death provides a way for all to know God, to be forgiven from their sins, and to receive new hearts. It tells us that Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of the new covenant, who applies salvation to us and leads us in sanctification throughout our lives. And it tells us that Jesus rose from the grave according to the scriptures, and as the firstborn from the grave has made a way for all who trust in him to experience that same resurrection. It reminds us that Jesus intercedes for all who place their trust in him because he willingly accepts our punishment for sin and gives us his righteousness so God can both be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. The New Testament shows us that Jesus fulfilled God's promises and did not fail in any of his purposes. And the New Testament shows us that those aspects of God's promises that are not yet fulfilled were not forgotten, but will surely be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. So Jesus is the theme of the New Testament. We began studying, or sorry, yeah, we began studying the Old Testament because it is truly the God's word and because it gives us truth that the, the New Testament does not. But also, we studied the Old Testament because it is the foundation for what we see in the New. It's the background for the coming of Christ. It's where we see God make all these promises that Jesus fulfills. So you wouldn't understand the New Testament without the Old. And yet, as we read the Old Testament, we need the New Testament. Because that is what everything is pointing forwards to. It's all pointing forwards to the coming of Christ. He is the theme of the New Testament, and truly, he's at the center of all Scripture. So the New Testament reveals all this about Christ as the theme, but it also applies the truth about Jesus Christ to every area of our life. And I can't flesh out every area that it affects. That, that'll be the job of each of our overview teachers. But let me just mention a few. The New Testament shows us how Jesus affects our relationship with other people. Jesus taught a lot about what it means to love your neighbor. And the epistles show us the divide between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. That's no longer a reason to keep the people of God separated. And that's been broken down only in Jesus Christ. It also speaks to the relationship between the rich and the poor, men and women, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, and subjects and ruling authorities, and how each one of those relationships is affected in Jesus Christ. The New Testament reveals God's plan for the church, the new community of believers in Jesus Christ, for whom he died and with whom he identifies. And it shows us how to interact with one another in the church. It tells us to value God's word as a church. And it commands the church to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. The New Testament gives us our marching orders for life in the church, and they are all based on the commands and the example and the encouragement of Jesus Christ. The New Testament shows us how Jesus affects our mindsets, and how we are to think in the current world as well. It shows how we must be transformed in the renewal of our mind in order to trust and follow the will of Jesus Christ. It shows us, that, it shows us what the mind of Christ is and what his priorities are and how to think the same way. And while the New Testament shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many promises that have come before, and he's already fulfilled those, it also shows that he will fulfill more in the future. It tells us that Jesus will return again, which gives us hope and, and excitement in our current time. 
And it also reminds us that we have the Holy Spirit, who is sent by Jesus as the seal of our inheritance to help us in this current time when Jesus is not here. The New Testament shows us that Jesus will return, that he will establish the millennial kingdom, which fulfills his promise to Israel of a kingdom on earth in their land, and his return shows his faithfulness to his word, as well as his power and his authority. So the New Testament ends by proclaiming these truths and calling us to trust in Jesus that he is coming again. So the New Testament shows how Jesus affects every area of our life, be it our relationship with God, our view of the law, our understanding of sin, how we handle money or time, how we should speak to one another, how we treat our spouse, how we think about singleness, and everything in between. The New Testament shows us that Jesus changes everything. And as we spend the next six months overviewing the New Testament, I hope that you see that truth proved over and over, that he truly does change everything. And I hope as we look at these truths in Scripture that your walk with Christ is strengthened as we consider them.